I once heard R.C. Sproul talk about an, a very interesting story. He was, he was telling the story of a minister who was talking to one of the uh, parishioners at a church picnic who really was a, a rare churchgoer, really didn't uh, come uh, very often. Um, and so the minister went up to him at this picnic and asked him why he wasn't uh, faithfully at church. Um, and the, he got this answer. He, the, the man said, well, pastor, I really don't need a church because my faith is personal and, my, and it's private and I worship God on my own. Well, to that, the minister walked over to the grill where they were grilling all the hamburgers and hot dogs and all the food, and he took one piece of coal off the pile of coals with the tongs and set it off to the side. And within just a matter of minutes, the one piece of coal totally lost its heat. It had no ability to do what it was, was to do. The rest of the, the coals kept burning and were getting the job done. But this isolated coal accomplished nothing. You and I need corporate worship to support each other. And that comes through the church. We need corporate worship and corporate prayer and corporate study if we are going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. To go out on our own, you'll fall flat on your face. But if you link yourself to a group who loves the Lord, who loves the Word of God, then you can burn bright for God. That's the point that we see in this first part of Acts. The power, the purpose, and the pattern. These are things that Jesus was instructing His disciples in just prior to His ascension. He told them that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued or provided with the power from on high. In verse 6, Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them not many days from now. The Holy Spirit had been with them. They had been born again. And the Holy Spirit had come into them. But in verse 8, Jesus says there's something more. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, context is everything. What he is saying isn't that you'll be able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. He's not saying that you'll be able to lift 500 pounds if you've never been to the gym or, or, or weightlifted. He's saying that God would give power to fulfill his purpose in their lives. You'd receive power to witness, to do it in such a way that always points to magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. But this is a threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit that you will at times hear, hear spoke about. The Bible uses three separate prepositions to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's with, in, and upon. It's at the point that the Holy Spirit literally comes into me, dwells in me, and it takes up his uh, habitation in my heart, that there's this spiritual transaction that takes place. Because I was once dead in sin and trespasses, but now I've been made alive. Now I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. 
You see, that's when I can see myself as I truly am. That's when I see that there is a conviction of sin. That's where I see the righteous judgment of a holy God. And once we see ourselves as sinners that we are, we cry out to God. We turn to Christ. We turn away from our sin and we believe that He is the only one ever that can give us life. And not only life, but life eternal. We have been born again of the Spirit of God. Folks, do you know what that means? That also means that you are now a child of God. And that's where the disciples are when we read Acts chapter 1. In John 2, uh, 20, verse 22, after he had risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, we read that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. We'll be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 1, and uh, starting with verse 12, we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 26. Here in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the, the disciples altogether. The number of names was about a hundred and twenty and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the, that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection." And so they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsubas, 
who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you, O Lord, you know the heart of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, you might have noticed that there's uh, quite a number of transactions and transitions here. Um, The first one is a theological transition, where we've gone from the ministry of Jesus in, in person to the ministry of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through his people. The second transaction that we see is an ethnological transaction from a place that was focusing uh, primarily on Israel as a nation to all these various groups, the Gentile nations and individuals around the globe. The hierarchy went from being a pure Jew, then it was half-Jews, which are Samaritans, um, and then to friends of Jews, which were proselyte, uh, proselytes, uh, those who were worshiping as Jews, and then to pagan Gentiles, those who ha- actually had no uh, connection with Judaism at all. Now, the other transaction that took place is a historical transaction. The emphasis on Israel, which Israel is used 20 times with either the synagogue, temple, priest, Sabbath, sacrifices, etc., to an emphasis on the local church. The church is used 19 times, uh, including times where it talks about pastors, deacons, ordinances, the Lord's Day, and all of that. There's also a geographical transition from a focus on Jerusalem to a focus on Antioch. One estimate for Paul's travels uh, was figured to be around 12,000 miles. Uh, The average traveler could probably go about 15 to 20 miles per day if he was on foot and 100 miles per day if he was on ship. So there was a geographic change here. But the next change was a pneumatological change, a transition. Pneumatology is actually the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's studying the Holy Spirit. And so we now go from the Spirit being with the believers to the Spirit being in the believers. And how did the disciples prepare for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, they ended up submitting themselves fully to the resurrected Christ, the Lord of the universe. Because before his ascension, Jesus commanded his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Motivated by the blessing of their ascended Lord and the angelic promise of his second coming, the apostles obeyed this command. They returned with great joy, not to Galilee, even though their homes and businesses were there. They ended up submitting and going to Jerusalem. That was hostile. That that city did not like them. 
but they were submitting to Christ. And so they were fully obeying his commands. Now, the disciples walked about three quarters of a mile from the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of the Kidron Valley to the city of Jerusalem. And when they arrived in the city, they went to an upper room, which was probably the same place where they ate the Last Supper. You see, upper rooms were living rooms of the time where people would stay and study and pray and assemble, and especially for special meetings. And so this particular upper room was spacious enough to accompany over 100 people. So why did the apostles need such a a large room? Because they had uh, many people who joined the 11. They wanted to wait there for God's promise. There were other uh, Galilean believers, and probably you would have seen Joseph of Arimathea up there. You probably see Nicodemus. Um, And then maybe the, the disciples that walked on the road to Emmaus, they would have been there. But in Acts 1.15, we read that this group was about 120. And so they needed a big room. The Lord commanded them to, to wait. They had no idea how long they were going to have to wait. They had no idea that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so they waited. They waited with submission and obedience to the Lord. And so they were preparing for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's something because they had every earthly reason to return to Galilee. But these disciples obeyed and waited in Jerusalem. Now with this in mind, I, I want you to turn your attention back to our text in verse 12. It, here it says that they were just a remnant. It talks about this remnant, um, a remnant of 120 people. And this wasn't the original New Testament remnant. Uh, If you think about it for a a moment, the original remnant was actually the 11, the 11 apostles who spent three years with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. But by this short period of time after Jesus ascended to heaven, the remnant had become over 10 times that number, 120 people. And they were gathered in the upper room. That's actually tenfold in just a short period of time. And there was greater growth in numbers that would soon come. You would have 3,000, then 5,000 more. But if you put all those numbers into perspective, um, Archaeologists tell us that hundreds of thousands of people, probably million or more, came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But out of those, only 120 are in the upper room. Only 120 were obeying Christ's final instruction and waiting for the Holy Spirit. And if you even think about even 3,000 being converted and added to uh, the church on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, it still would have been just a remnant in terms of the vast number of religiously observant Jews who were at uh, Jerusalem for the feast. The 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost. That wasn't even 10% of the people there. It wasn't even 5% or 1%. 
Actually, the people converted were about three-tenths of one percent of the total number of people that were in Jerusalem for this religious observant. We sit there and we wonder, oh, you know, boy, these big churches, they're mega churches, they're all this. And I often think that there's nothing wrong with mega church. If God wants to use that, there are many faithful mega churches. But there are other churches that find their strength in people, not in their conviction, not in their desire to please the Lord. And so they might be big, but I think sometimes it's those smaller churches that are mighty. But if you notice that this this remnant was still there, and what Luke does is he starts off verses 12 and 13 by telling the list of names that were there. And there again with verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, it tells us that it was a Sabbath day's journey um, from the Mount of of Olives. Um, The Sabbath day journey, according to the Mishnah, was about two-thirds of a mile, approximately 1,100 yards. Um, But it's been calculated that to travel this distance, it wouldn't have been much. It would have been probably about a half-mile walk and, and maybe 10 to 15 minutes. But it's interesting that these apostles do not initially go to the temple. You would think, oh, yeah, our, our risen Savior is, has, has gone up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. You would think, okay, now let's go to the temple to worship. But they don't. They go to a private house and specifically back to the upper room. And I think that Scripture would have us believe that it was probably that same upper room where they met with, uh, for the Last Supper with Jesus Christ. The Greek actually contains the article the, which indicates a specific upper room. And so in verse 13, Luke lists the name of the 11 given here. It's one of actually four lists that are in the New Testament. You can find the other lists in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, Luke chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, and then here in Acts. Now, I thought it was very interesting. In every single one of these lists, Peter is always mentioned first. In every single one of these lists, Philip is always fifth. James, the son of Alphaeus, is always ninth. And Judas Iscariot, who doesn't show up on this list, uh, is always last. He's missing from this list, obviously, because he's, he's dead. He had fallen away. And so um, in some of the lists, there had been uh, worldly people that had met Christ. And, and this list contains like Peter, James, and John. I mean, they were of the world before they met Christ. They were in the fishing business. The... the uh, Apostle Matthew 
He was in a worldly business. He was a tax collector. Simon, he was a religious zealot. Uh, Andrew, Thomas, Bartholomew, James, son of Alphaeus, Judas, the son of James. We don't know much about them. But they were all in the world at one point, And they weren't really impressive names of the world. But these 11 had experienced God's grace. And guess what? God was going to use them to change the world. But wait, there's more. Verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. If you notice what this remnant is doing in the upper room, they were doing exactly as Jesus told them to stay, wait, and pray until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will receive power from him to do the work that I've called you to do. A praying, supplicating remnant is a remnant that waits upon the Lord for his resources. It's a remnant that receives power from God. And here we see both men and women united in prayer and supplication. If you really think about it, where are most people who profess that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, where are most people? Yeah, they're probably out mowing their lawn. They're on the golf course. They're out shopping. But yet they say that I'm a Christian. They might even be at a sporting event. Oh, you know what? Packers are playing. It's a home game. I better get up there. I, I don't need church. That's exactly where their heart is. But that's exactly where the modern-day seeker-friendly church wants. They want these people in the church. I'm going to throw you a little curveball here. When they're going to church where the Bible is not honored and the gospel of Christ is not preached, they would probably be better off being out on the golf course, being out shopping, being wherever they're going to be. Or maybe they just go to the church of the inner spring, you know, where the pastor is pastorpedic, you know, posturpedic, where their bed is the pew. You know, but see, that is it. Where they, they sit there and they call themselves Christian. And really, no one is going to challenge them on that. If you please turn to Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9. Matthew chapter 16, or 15. Listen to this very closely. Starting with verse 6, it says, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now listen to this. 
and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, the fact is that true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are a minority among a minority. A small minority of our population is in church, in the visible church on Sunday mornings. But most of that minority consists of people who are in a church service and being led astray farther and farther from uh, from the truth. And that is happening from the pulpit. So what's happening is they are actually being inoculated or inoculated against the truth. They are being told that, you know, you like the church service, you like the music, you like the preaching, you must be a believer. It's assimilation instead of regeneration. That is one of those things where people go, well, you know, I really never knew I was a, a believer until someone told me I was. Folks, it's not our business to go telling people they're believers. They will say that when they come face to face and are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know this. At the same time, truly converted people around the world every Lord's Day are gathering to worship God in spirit and truth, and they are faithful to His Word. Folks, know that we are a small remnant on any given Sunday. You please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads, where? To destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Small. But we're there because we are doing what the Lord says. It shows that as true believers, what are these, these folks here in verse 14 doing? They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They were seeking the Lord's will in their lives. That phrase, one accord, in the Greek is uh, homothumadon, and it means to pray with one mind. One accord, one passion. Folks, public prayer and supplication? So much of the time. I have so many people that go, you know what? We need to gang up on God. We need to pray so that God changes His mind. What is that all about? God changing His mind? That is an impossibility. That would mean that God had some new revelation or new information that he didn't have before. And guess who tells him? Us sinners. We're going to tell him exactly what he needs to know. But that's not why we get others to pray for someone or something. 
We get others to pray so that we together with one mind, one body, one church, working together, seeking the will of God. Homothumadon is a unique word. It's used 10, t- 10 of its 12 times in the New Testament are in the book of Acts. It helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. Homothumadon is actually a compound word. It's made of two words. You know what it, it means? Rushing along in unison. Rushing along in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes being sounded while different harmonize in pitch and tone as the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master. So the Holy Spirit blends together the lives and members of Christ's church. And again, in verse 14, you might notice Mary isn't in a place of exaltation. She's part of the group as a whole. Mary, the mother of of Jesus, was was figured very significantly in God's plan for the incarnation, and she was a virtuous woman. And God had chosen her for her service, and yet she considered herself the Lord's handmaid. The great significance of the statement that she was with the 120 is that this is the last mention of Mary in all the Bible. And that should be proof enough that God never intended for Mary to be venerated or above normal peers. It's also especially encouraging to read that his brothers or half-brothers were part of the original church. These were Jesus' biological half-brothers, the other children of Joseph and Mary. You know, those guys who did not believe Jesus at first and actually mocked him. We know that Jesus met with James after his resurrection, and then uh, which convinced him that uh, he was God in the flesh. And James actually became a significant leader in the church. He wrote uh, a letter bearing his name. And then no doubt James had influence on his other brothers, particularly Judas, better known as Jude, who also wrote a letter bearing his name. So continuing with verses 15 through 17, we hear, uh, we read there, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. So here, Peter is the spokesman. He led this meeting of about 120 people. And this was actually the beginning of Peter's apostolic ministry. And for the first 12 chapters of Acts, he's the main guy. He's he's going to be the de facto leader 
of the church at Jerusalem. His ministry will continue well after that, all the way through whatever, uh, wherever else he, he traveled. And he traveled a lot. And the last thing we know for sure is that he did write First and Second Peter, and tradition tells us that he was martyred not af- long after that. But Peter was there as the gospel spread in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that in the next couple of Sundays. And, and, and it's just a glorious message. But then it says to Judea and then to Samaria. We see that in, in verse 8. But Peter's the main guy in Jerusalem when that happens. And he's the first apostle to deal with a group of Gentiles. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts shows the connection through Peter to the ministry of Paul. And the rest of the book chronicles primarily uh, the ministry of, to the Gentiles through the apostle Paul. But it was always to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So what did Peter say? Well, verse 16 tells us exactly what he said. The scripture had to be fulfilled. You see, the plan of God unfolds seamlessly, relentlessly from beginning to end. And the connection with the Old Testament is crucial, but it's also unmistakable. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And so you notice that he says the scripture had to be fulfilled. Well, the written word was from the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. Second Samuel uh uh, 23.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and the word was on my tongue. That's David. That's the connection that Peter is making. God uses people guided by the Holy Spirit to write his word, and we recognize uh, as that as the Scriptures. The men of God they, with their own, uh, own hand, wrote scriptures guided by the Holy Spirit. And then the last part is 16 and then 17. It says concerning Judas, who had become a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. So here, Judas is this man who represents one who can be very close to Jesus and not actually have a relationship with Jesus. His actual crime is one of spiritual rejection. He was one of the twelve. The men surrounding Jesus, they all looked like they were friends. You wouldn't have picked out Judas from any one of them and said, well, you know what? He looks like a criminal. He looks satanic. You see, and these days, we always think that those evil guys will notice them because they got little bitty sawed-off mustaches. See, we, we all think that, oh, yep, I can understand that one's a wicked one. But we, we can't. 
He didn't look sinister. He looked very respectable. Judas is the ultimate example of a professing believer who does not actually possess a real relationship to Jesus Christ. It's possible to be numbered among other believers. And that even goes for pastors. There are pastors who are phony. Judas types join religious organizations but do not have a right heart with God. Judas received physical appointment and and portion of everything apostolic, but he didn't have a spiritual heart that was right with God. And so in verses 18 and 19 of our text, it says, now this man purchased a, a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those who dwell in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akil Dama, that is, field of blood. And so we can't make apologies for God's absolute sovereignty over things, whether it's his predestination or his providence. Because the Bible simply asserts what is true concerning our Creator. Having created us from dust of the ground, having breathed into us the breath of life, it is His eternal right to counsel and plan what brings Him the most glory in the world and in our lives. It is not our right to tell God what He should have done or how He should have done it. Just as the Lord raised up Pharaoh to resist God and Moses, so the glory and power of God might be manifest in delivering his people, Israel, from the great great and mighty nation of Egypt, God likewise raised up Judas. Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle and ordained that Judas should betray Christ by his own wicked desire. Isn't it remarkable how we fall upon the sovereignty of God to supply our needs, to heal us, to do all manner of things? We even will pray, Lord, I pray that you will save my son, my daughter, my husband, anyone You sit there and you cry out, but then when you talk about the sovereignty of God in election, they go, oh, nope, can't have that. Even though you're crying out for that. And then we also balk at his sovereignty and wisdom when it comes to taking us through these fiery trials of temptations and afflictions and heartaches. But he does it all for his glory and for for our good. We want God to be almighty when it's what we want. But it's as though we want him to be a weak, mere man, someone like us, when we want that, when we want what we want. There are times when we want him to be powerless and submit to our authority. 
Now this is truly amazing. That Judas betrayed Christ and he was actually chosen by Christ to be one of the original 12. One who was endowed with miraculous power, just like the other apostles. He was even appointed as treasurer. He was close to Christ. He was a member of the visible church. He was an apostle within the visible church. And yet, Judas was never born again by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Judas was never justified by faith alone. Judas was never an adopted child of God. John 6, 70 and 71, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, I did not choose you, the twelve, or did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And so why did the Lord ordain such a man to be an apostle, knowing all along what kind of wicked hypocrite he was? Well, for one thing, scriptures must be fulfilled. When God ordained and scriptures prophesied, it must come to pass to the glory of God. It was fulfilled, it fulfilled the sovereign purpose of God to bring Christ's betrayer from among his own. He was rejected by his own for you, he was betrayed by one of his own for you. He knows what you suffer. He is at the right hand of God. For another thing, it's to warn us all how close we can outwardly come to Christ. We hear His preaching. We see His miracles. We see His love and invitation to sinners. And yet, we may eternally be lost. Forever lost in eternal torment. A person can be professing to be a disciple of Christ and even a minister of Christ and yet be a great pretender and hypocrite who inherits everlasting destruction and torment rather than everlasting life. Peter continues to speak of the awful death of Judas, which had become known throughout all Jerusalem, and how the blood money of Judas was used by the chief priest to purchase the field in which to bury him and to bury strangers. If you'd please turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we'll, we'll look at verses 3 through 10. Starting with verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had done, had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful for us to put this back into the treasury because they are, are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with, with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them, uh, gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. You see, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it, it just talks about Judas hanging himself. But here in, in Acts, Peter says there's more to the story. Apparently, Judas hung himself in a tree that overlooked this mountainous gorge. And as he hung, the branch broke, casting him down onto a sharp mass of rocks, and that split him open. So his bowels and intestines came out. And that's just a gruesome death. And, and that was the death for this son of perdition. But in case we forget it, it is Peter that is delivering these words concerning, concerning Judas. This Peter who some 40 days earlier had even denied knowing the Lord. Not once, but three times with a curse. And so who in the world does Peter think he is standing up in front of all these people pointing out the sin of Judas? How can he be qualified to deliver such words of judgment against Judas when he couldn't even stand up for Christ against a little young girl? Where was Peter? when the Lord was being falsely accused, being beat to a bloody pulp by the Romans, having a crown of thorns driven into to him with blows from a rod deep into his skull, being mocked and ridiculed and hated and despised. You see, it's not so much the nature of the sin of betrayal is the sin of denial. That's the difference. It was the nature of grace in Peter and the absence of grace in Judas that made the difference between those. They were both part of the visible church. Both have been baptized. Both are apostles. Both did had miraculous ability. But here's the difference is that Peter had true repent, repentance, not just mere regret. Peter's perseverance was not of his own righteousness and strength, but God's eternal election in Christ before the world began. God's free grace in redeeming Peter. We see that in Christ's prayer for Peter 
in Luke chapter 22. And so is everyone who confesses his own guilt, his own corruption and sin. The fact that hell is deserved. Who look in faith alone to Christ alone and his righteousness. And Jesus has bodily ascended to intercede for you, not just for Peter, that your faith will not fail. And that's why Peter is representative here. Because it shows that he was restored by Christ. Remember in John 21, 16, Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter had to be confronted with his pride. In verse 15, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Meaning, there's other things. Is your affection on me? Or is it on everything else? If you noticed, no one takes objection to Peter taking the lead as the apostle of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1 because they know that the Lord had restored him, commissioned him anew to take the office of apostle. Had Jesus not done so, there would have been a lot of objections to what Peter was doing here. And the fact that there's no division within this this body of believers, as Peter spoke as an apostle, shows his restoration and repentance. And now he was prepared to be the leader of the apostles. And so in verse 20 of our text, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. You see, there was more than just feeling that they needed to have 12. This was based on prophetic revelation that is written in Scripture. In Luke's first gospel, he ended it by saying that Jesus taught that these apostles um, and, and opened their minds to understanding and all things that were written about him, all the things that were written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So really, in essence, what Peter is standing up saying, he's saying, Judas didn't foil God's plan. He fulfilled it. And Scripture had to be fulfilled. The Word of God never misses the mark. Just like Joseph being betrayed and sold into slavery. Men may have meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? 
God's word always comes to pass. Always. If you please turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. So many people take and twist that verse. Well, I shared the gospel. You know, it says that God's word doesn't come back void, so that person is going to be saved. It's not what it says. It's whatever God has determined will happen. It will happen. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's either going to convict or it's going to save. It's either going to condemn or it's going to bring to eternal glory. The Word of God, just remember, when you present the Gospel, God is glorified whether that person comes to faith in Christ or not. Because His Word will do its intended purpose. It is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is inspired. Every Word of God is pure. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul said something just like this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so here, while Peter is talking to these, these folks, he, he pulls from uh, two Psalms. He says, guys, we need to find a replacement for Judas. What did he prophesy? The fact that another would take the office because this was foretold. And so that's exactly what they intend to do. In verses 21 and 22 of the text, we read the qualifications for apostleship says, therefore, of these men who accompanied us all the time that Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of, of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, I hope you notice that the qualifications mentioned here eliminate any possibility of there being apostles today. How many false 
churches have apostles? Impossibility. As a matter of fact, Judas was the only apostle that was replaced. There was no continuation of apostleship. And this was only to replace an ungodly false apostle with a godly one. If you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. Verse 19, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What is being built? It says, you are now members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation. And it says, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, being built together, are a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. How many times have you heard, well, you know what, I heard that they have all the uh, materials all set up in Jerusalem to build a temple. That temple is being built right here, folks, with, with the apostles as a foundation and Jesus Christ as a chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the, in the Spirit. They were looking for divine guidance for choosing an apostle to replace Judas. And it was critically important that the Lord himself, and no man did this, we no longer choose apostles. Why? The foundation has been set. It has been laid. And I hope that you understand that this was not a regular practice even for the early church. We are given no more apostolic doctrine than what we have. And the theology of casting lots, we're given other ways to discern the will of God, but this is not one of them. In the case of the apostles, it was necessary that there would be 12. Jesus had appointed 12 to be his official witnesses, and there should be 12 on the day of Pentecost because they were to witness to Israel, consisting of 12 tribes. The new covenant was the fulfillment of the promise of the 12 tribes. And so there were to be 12 apostles. 11 wouldn't do it. And the man had to be chosen because he was intimately connected with the foundational apostles. And there are three points to this. They had to have accompanied all the apostles all the time when the Lord went in and out among them in the past 40 days. 
they had to all have been with the apostles since the baptism of John to the time Jesus ascended into heaven. And they had to have been an eyewitness to uh, Christ's resurrection. After this initial witness to Israel at Jerusalem, it was complete. There no longer had to be 12. The apostle James was killed. There's no record whatsoever of seeking to replace him. He was martyred. James didn't forfeit his office by apostasy as Judas did, but he died a noble death as a martyr. And that confirmed his his steadfastness, part of the steadfast foundation. So unlike Judas, he was still one of the 12 and will always be one of the 12. None of the apostles but Judas was replaced because none of the apostles but Judas was apostatized. And so finally, we read in verses 23 through 26, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the heart of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and they felt, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. We are given biblical instruction for choosing deacons and elders, and it is not cast in lots. We choose them based on qualification for the office. Paul and Barnabas, they chose elders by the same qualifications. Timothy, he laid his hands on appointed elders by the same qualifications that we use. All the founding churches appointed elders, and it wasn't by casting lots. Casting lots should never be seen as normative for the church. Just just like, you know, how many times do you, someone has a tough decision, they go, well, I laid out a fleece. Really? Really? You laid out a fleece to know. How about look in the Word of God? How about be directed by the Word of God? How about go, instead of having some mystical experience, look to the Word of God? The fleece was there for a purpose with Gideon, not for you. We need to stand on the Word of God. We don't get into this mystical stuff. We are called to be a disciple. And that word disciple is um, methetes. And the disciple, that word methetes, means a learner or a follower. Now, the uh, Greek word for apostle is apostole. 
and it means quite a bit more. Actually, the word apostole in the Greek referred to an emissary or a royal delegate. In communication in those days, you could only have communication as, as fast as a man could ride on horseback. And so it really made uh, negotiation somewhat cumbersome. So what would happen is the kings and the emperors of those days would appoint apostles. And an apostle would be sent out to do the business of the king or the country. They were emissaries that would be able to speak with authority of the king, not of their own. And so this was the perfect word for Jesus to borrow to refer to the select group of his disciples. They would go out and they would talk about uh, with, with power and authority, not of their own power and their own authority, but the power of Jesus Christ. And so we can see that we don't choose apostles anymore. There are no apostles past this first generation. Like I said, the foundation's been built. Now we might go, well, what about the apostle Paul? Well, he's exceptional. The, these, these, uh, these other apostles are the 12. How the apostle Paul fits in this, guess what? Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't exactly know how he fits in, but he was a true apostle. And one day in glory, we'll find out. We'll find out exactly how that all fits in. But we do know that he was directly chosen and appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 26, it does tell us the outcome of these people in the upper room. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This man was among the 70 that Jesus sent out during his early ministry. But now he became one of the 12 forever and ever. And actually, we, we know through antiquity and, and history that he served as a missionary to Africa. I think it's interesting that it wasn't until they, they ended up preparing the church to have the 12, you know, to replace Judas and, and have 12, that Jesus probably, as Sinclair Ferguson says, he probably turned to the Father and says, we're ready. Let's pour out our Spirit on them. The last point I want to make is that the only authority that a pastor or preacher or elder has is is the authority that comes from standing on the clear teaching of the Word of God. The authority is in a word, not a man. And it's critical that we understand that. You can be certain that kingdom citizens are to gather for prayer and preaching. You can be certain that the church should always be building on apostolic foundation. 
And it's for the reason that uh, it's the reason to put your faith in Christ, the Lord who is building the church on the foundation of the, of the apostles and him, the chief cornerstone. So what are we to do? We're told exactly what to do. Pray, preach, gather, believe, and wait for a second coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as our, our goals need to be aligned to your kingdom priorities, so our timing also needs to be aligned to your timing. You often call us to wait on you so that your will and your purpose will be accomplished in your timing. Lord, give us faith and patience to wait. Let us redeem the time while we wait. Let us be united with our church family, meeting together regularly, devoted to prayer and study of your word. Let us be like Martin Luther who said, I have so much to accomplish this day, I will never get it done unless I spend at least six hours in prayer. Let us understand how important that is. Let us understand how important it is to be part of a local church. The temple being built. It is so incredibly glorious and awesome to think of how you are using each of us even in this time where we know and we feel like such a remnant, you are using us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' most precious and glorious name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.